blessing, that last song and holiness, uh, we are in Leviticus. And we picked up uh, the last few weeks dealing with the last section of the book of Leviticus from 17 through 26, tonight beginning in 21. But the theologians call this section the holiness code. So it is how they were to conduct themselves to guide their everyday lives as Israelis and in reality, how Israelis could draw near to God who had tabernacled himself in the midst of their camp while they're in the wilderness, in the midst of their country once they go into Israel and enter into the promised land. And so I've been reading an author about the earlier portions of the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and he introduced a problem, if you recall, at the end of Exodus chapter 40, that they set up the tabernacle and the Spirit of God came upon the tabernacle, filled the place so much so that Moses could no longer enter in. So no one could enter in because of the presence of God. And so how do you come into the presence of God? And so God is teaching Israel how they could have moral and sacred laws to help guide them in their everyday lives that would give them not only a good relationship with one another, but bring them into fellowship with God. Of course, the book of Leviticus dealing with the sacrificial offerings. But this in portion, the Holy Holiness Code, chapter 17 through 26, really teaching Israel how they should walk before the Lord. A key to this section is Leviticus 19, 1 and 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So we learn in Leviticus 11 through 15 that there was distinction that was made. God made distinction between the clean and the unclean. Leviticus 16 taught of the uh, day of atonement, Leviticus 17, of the sanctity of life, and especially the blood. I told us that our memory verse there in Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for your souls. Now we find that God distinguishes here in 17 through 27, uh, distinguishing between the holy and the profane. So teaching Israel how they should worship. I want to go ahead and open us and just ask God to bless the teaching of the word. I know that Philip did this already. Um, also, I want to just give thanksgiving to the provision that the Lord has given us in our homes, our families, and this church. And so, Father, we just, before we get into the teaching of your word here tonight, I want to pause and just ask, Lord, that your spirit would give us understanding of your word here in the book of Leviticus, uh, the center book of the Pentateuch, and how important uh, this book is for the Israeli people, but really for the church. It gives us a sense of morality and our understanding, Lord, of your ultimate sacrifice of your son through his death on the cross. And so, Lord, we gain a lot from this book as Christians. 
in understanding the sacrificial system and the gift of our Savior Jesus when he died upon the cross. And Lord, I just want to pause tonight to give thanksgiving, Lord, for the provision in our families. Uh, A few weeks ago on Sunday morning, teaching from Matthew chapter 6, give us this day our daily bread. And Lord, we thank you for the provision for our homes and for this fellowship. And we ask, Lord, that you will continue to provide in these troubling times that we find ourselves in, in this nation. And finally, Lord, I ask that your spirit would work in our lives. Our country is going down a dangerous path that is separating itself further from you and the truths of your word. And Lord, there is a strong attack against the children of our nation. And I pray, Father, that you would help the church to stand strong and for families to stand strong in this nation. We ask, Lord, in the name of Jesus, amen. So I titled the overall title for Leviticus 21, Do Not Defile or Profane. And chapters 21 and 22 largely um, given to the priest how they could should conduct themselves before the Lord. And in verse 6, a key verse for the priest, And they shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of their God, For they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. So really dealing with the conduct of the priest, uh, the common priest, the regular priest, as well as the high priest uh, in this section here in Leviticus 21. We read in verses 1 through 4, And the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priest, the sons of Aaron, And say to them, none shall defile himself for the dead among his people except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also his virgin sister who is near to him, who has had no husband. For her he may be defiled. Otherwise he shall not defile himself being a chief man among his people to profane himself. And so this is really this defiling here is talking about becoming ceremonially unclean to serve at the tabernacle for the common priest. This is not the high priest. We'll read about him in the next section. For the common priest, if someone died, family members died, friends died, acquaintances died, he could only... Uh, go to the death of his nearest relatives, his mother, father, son, daughter, brother, a virgin sister, and no one else. So he's married, um, and his father-in-law dies. He had to refrain from attending the funeral and being part of the customary practices that they would observe at that time. This meant that all other deaths, whether a mother-in-law, father-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, You can kind of get the picture. They were not allowed to touch the dead. And that's because death came as a result of the fall. And as a result of sin came from that. Therefore, they could not make them 
themselves ceremonially unclean, ceremonially unclean, I said that too fast, with anyone other than immediate blood relatives. So we find again in Numbers 19, 11 through 13, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. So here's the general law for everyone in Israel. But the priest fell under this as well. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean for seven days. He shall purify himself with water on the third day. On the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died, does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. When you read in the Pentateuch, the cut off from Israel, that's a nice way of saying they shall be put to death. Pretty strong penalty. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. So this was a general law for the children of Israel. How much more should this law apply to the priest who ministered before God in behalf of its nation? So five and six, then they shall not make any bald place on their heads. They shall not shave the ed- edges of their beards or make any cuttings in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God and not profane the name of the, their God. For they offer the offerings of the Lord made by fire and the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. So we find here that they were not to be like the cults, the other nations that were practiced in the promised land where they were going back in Egypt where they had left. There were to be no uh, divination, no soothsaying. Uh, no unorthodox cutting of the beards. So I'm pulling that divination and soothsaying from Leviticus 19:26 through 28. Once again, this is a general law for all Israelis, how much more for the priest who served before God. But in Leviticus 19:26 through 28, they were not to eat blood, practice divination or soothsaying, verse 26. Have no unorthodox beard shavings, 27, no cutting of the flesh or tattoos, 28. And so a lot of times, not only were these associated with pagan worship, they also, during the death of a loved one, someone might cut their hair, shave their hair, or make some odd cuttings. And the priests were not to do this. Once again, death came as a result of the fall. And as a result of the fall, sin came into the world. God said in Leviticus 20, 26, you shall be holy to me for I am the Lord, I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. A general rule, but they had as priests been separated from the peoples. They were also not to defame themselves in their marriages, in their sexual relations, 7 through 9 it says, they shall not take a wife who is a harlot or a defiled woman, nor shall they take a woman divorced of her husband, for the priest is holy to his God. Therefore, you shall consecrate him, for he offers the bread of your God. And that's the third time that he offers the bread of your God, the food 
of God, um, not only the bread of presence that was in the holy place of the Holy of Holies, but I also the sacrificial offerings that were offered to the Lord, the bread of your God. That's the third time that phrase has been mentioned. Verse 8, picking up again, He shall be holy to you, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you, am holy. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by playing the harlot, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. And so again, uh, fornication, adultery, prostitution, playing the harlot, technically prostitution. Um, Again, capital punishment, pretty harsh crimes early on. This was God's standard. Thankfully, God doesn't require that today of us. The Lord has paid the price of our sin, but it does not mean that we should strive to walk in fellowship with God. Uh, We should strive to walk in the way that is pleasing to God. For the priest, not talking about the high priest here or those who are in line of secession to become the high priest. So for the common priest, he had to either marry a virgin or a widow. He could not marry a prostitute, a woman who has lost her virginity, a divorced woman. And the reason for the strictness of this law was because they offered the bread of God. Therefore, God, they were to keep themselves pure before the Lord God in life and in ministry. It mattered how they conduct themselves in society. I was thinking about this and, you know, I'll get to it in a moment of the bishop. And there are requirements for pastors today for the church. And uh, some people are throwing away these requirements, but we should not throw these things away. Titus 1, 6 through 9 says, If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dispensation or insubordination, for the bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful words as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine to both exhort and convict those who contradict. And so in the church today, we have standards by which pastors should live by as men of God. And sadly, in the church today, many in parts of the church have abandoned the standards that God has set for pastors. And God was holding a high standard to the common priests. God wasn't just, in verse 9, if the girl prostituted himself, she was to be put to death. God wasn't just picking on a girl here in verse 9, because verses 1 through 8 all dealt with the sons of Aaron and how they had to conduct themselves. And so we could stretch it out and say how the sons and daughters of Aaron should conduct themselves as children of the priestly line. So the priests stood as mediators between the people and God. Therefore, as God's representatives, they were not to defile themselves, nor were their children. So the high priest had even a higher standard. It goes to say, right? His name, high priest. 
God held him to a higher standard than his brethren, especially in the area of marriage. But first, verses 10 through 12, it says, He who is the high priest among his brethren, on whose head the anointing oil was poured, and who is consecrated to wear the garments, the high priestly garments, shall not cover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he go near any dead body, nor defile himself for his father or his mother, nor shall he go out of the sanctuary, nor profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is upon him. I am the Lord. So for the high priest, if mom and dad died, if a brother died, he couldn't do the normal mourning practices of the people who would often uh, cover their heads. They would tear their clothes. Um, he had to stay away from all of that. Again, death, a result of the fall. As a result of the fall came sin into this world. But also the going to be with the dead would make the high priest inactive. As we read earlier, it took seven days to purify yourself. If anyone in Israel touched someone who is dead, it was a seven-day process for purification. So, you know, the high priest, the main guy over the whole priesthood, out of commission for seven days, that would not be a good thing. You want him to be able to do his ministry before the Lord. And so even his closest loved ones, so that would be hard. Remember when Nahab and Abihu offered profane fire before the Lord at the tabernacle of the Lord, and the Lord killed them, Aaron and his sons were not allowed to mourn. But Moses said, let your brethren mourn, but you have the anointing. You have to stay at the tabernacle. You can't walk away from this. That's found in Leviticus 10, verses 6 through 7, where in verse 7 he says, You shall not go out from the door of the tabernacle of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the words of Moses. And it was hard on them. In fact, later on in this chapter, Aaron would not do all the priestly duties. And he told his brother Moses, Look, my two sons died today. If I would have done this next step, it would have been, uh, it wouldn't have been right. My heart wasn't right. And so Moses was satisfied with that. But they were held to this higher standard. Also in marriage, 13 through 15, he shall take a wife in her virginity, a widow or a divorced woman or a defiled woman or a harlot. These he shall not marry, but he shall take a virgin of his own people as his wife, nor shall he profane his prosperity among his people, for I, the Lord, sanctify him. So it's God who does the sanctifying, and God saying, you can only marry a virgin, no widows, and the others were off limit anyways, for all the priests, divorced, defiled, or harlots. Um, but the common priest could marry a widow, but the high priest could only marry a virgin. And this is partly due because there was the secession of the line of the high priest, the Arianic priesthood, and by marrying a virgin, it would ensure that a son born to them was truly of the lineage 
of the Arianic line. I kind of looked this over as far as had to be a wife of his own people. And immediately it caused me to think of Zacharias and Elizabeth, where in the accounts of John the Baptist, the parents of John the Baptist, in Luke 1.5, it says, In the day of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife of the daughters of Aaron, her name was Elizabeth. So not only did Zacharias marry an Israeli, he married an Israeli of the tribe of Aaron. She was of the daughters of Aaron. And it doesn't quite specify. I kind of have an open question mark on that. Did they have to marry within the tribe? Some commentators said no, as long as they were Israeli. But we do find one example where they married within the tribe. And then I took it to the church and today, our modern age, for any of us. The Bible warns us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What communion has light with darkness? And so that verse actually Many years ago, when I was considering going into business with a non-Christian, who was a very good brick mason, and a company was being offered to us, I think the boss was just trying to get away out of the company that somebody else would take it from him, but it was being offered to us, and kind of in a payment plan process, it would have been an easy step into business, and uh, I was considering it, and a Christian brother of mine came over and he said, you know, 2 Corinthians 6.14 is not only talking about marriage. He goes, I was in business with a non-Christian and I had to get out. It was bad. So that saved me at that point in my life. Do not be unequally yoked. And so that's part of this as well. So priest also, and this may seem harsh uh, in a day and age here in the United States where we have so many um, rules and laws concerning uh, handicap access to bathrooms and facilities and uh, just equality in that sense of no discrimination. Here, the priestly line could not have any physical defects, obvious physical defects that he goes through a list here but once again, the defects came as a result of the fall. The fall came as a result of sin, and they had to be perfect in representing God there at the tabernacle. So the Lord spoke to Moses, 16 through 24, speak to Aaron, saying, No man of your descendants in succeeding generations who has any defect may approach to offer the bread of his God. For any man who has a defect shall not approach, a blind man, a lame, one who has a marred face or any limb too long, a man who has a broken foot or a broken hand, or is a hunchback or a dwarf, a man who has had a defect in his eye or eczema or scab or is a eunuch. No man of the descendants of Aaron the priest who has a defect shall come near to offer the fires, offerings made by fire to the Lord. He has a defect. He shall, cannot, shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. 
That's the fifth time that phrase has been used, the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both the most holy and the holy, only he shall not go near the veil or approach the altar because he has a defect, lest he profane my sanctuaries. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And Moses told it to Aaron and his sons and to the children of Israel. So God set a standard that may seem odd to us today. But he set a standard for his priests that they were to abide by. And again, the church has for their pastors and bishops have a standard. First Timothy 3 verses 1 through 7. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires to be in the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop must be blameless, a husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, but one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he be able to take care of the church? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are on the outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. And so God set a standard for his spiritual leaders, the leaders of the church and the leaders over Israel. And these prohibitions, once again, they may seem odd to us with all the laws that we have in our nation today, but not that a handicap necessarily is caused by individual sin, but they do carry the mark of the fall. We all carry the mark of the fall upon us. We all have that inherited sin nature. But remember that the disciples asked Jesus in John 1 or John 9 verses 1 through 3, now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the work of God should be revealed in him. Israel saw a blind man. They thought, obviously, that that man had sinned to cause himself to be born blind. I don't know how born blind, where the sin took place, it had to take place in the womb. Or the parents, that's what they thought, and that's what culture taught them. But Jesus said neither, but that the works of God would be revealed in him. God had a different plan and did great works through this man in John chapter 9. It is true that sickness and death came as a result of the fall, but physical disabilities or illnesses do not always come by walking in disobedience to God and his word. Sometimes they come that God might be glorified through those circumstances in our lives. So in context of the Leviticus chapter 21, just as the sacrificial offerings were to be offered without spot or blemish, so too were the priests who represented God before the people. Today we understand that God can, though, take our sins, take our disabilities, 
and he can take these things and ultimately use them for his glory. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if any man, or I would add if any one is in Christ, any woman, any man, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so the priest, to review this chapter, were not able to defile or profane themselves, nor the tabernacle of God where they stood as mediators between God and the people. In a similar way today, as believers, we should not defile or profane ourselves. That is because we are to represent God, represent Christ before this lost and dying world in need of our Savior, Jesus. So chapter 22, as we continue on in Leviticus, we find that we are sanctified by truth. And I put two verses as a key verse here, two verses. So 32 and 33 says, You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Who does the sanctifying? God. I am the Lord. He said that a few times already in chapter 21, again in chapter 22. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So the word sanctify comes from a Hebrew word that means to be clean, to be separate, or to be holy. And it's twice used in verse 32. The first time is translated as hallowed, and the second time as sanctifies. And it is God who sanctifies us, hallows his people, and is to be hallowed among his people. So once again, this chapter dealing with the priests and how they are to conduct themselves. Remember chapter 17 through 27 in the book of Leviticus. We kind of went past that peak, uh, the peak found in Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. And now prior to the Day of Atonement, they taught between being clean and unclean. And now on the other side of the Day of Atonement as a peak, teaching how to be between the difference between profane and holy. And so the priests must separate themselves. So God sanctifies us. He sets us apart, but also we have a responsibility as well. 1 through 9 says, The Lord spoke to Moses, said, Speak to Aaron and his sons that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel, that they do not profane my holy name, by what they dedicate to me, I am the Lord. Say to them, whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations who go near to the holy things which the children of Israel dedicated to the Lord while he, uh, while he has uncleanness upon him, that person shall be cut off from my presence, I am the Lord. Cut off in the Pentateuch, nice way of saying put to death. We don't want to go there. Verse 4, whatever man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or has a discharge, some kind of medical discharge, some, something going on in their body, shall not eat of the holy offerings until he is clean. So for the person who has leprosy, this could be forever until he is healed. Whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who has had an emission of semen or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he is made unclean, any person of whom 
he has become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, that person who has touched such a thing shall be unclean to, until evening, shall not eat of the holy offerings unless he has washed his body with water. And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterwards he may eat of the holy offering because it is his food. The holy offering was the provision that God gave to the priests to feed themselves and their families, but they could not eat of that offering while they were unclean. But here we're not talking about sin, we're just talking about being ceremonially unclean. And sometimes it just meant waiting until the sun set to be deemed clean once again, washing, letting the sun set, you were clean, they were free to eat of the holy food. Verse 8, whatever dies naturally or is torn by beasts, he shall not eat to defile it, file himself with it. I am the Lord. So this is talking about an animal that was not properly killed in the sense it became unkosher because it died or was torn by a beast. It wasn't properly bled. Remember Leviticus 17:11. I've given you blood and God set apart the blood. And so he sets that blood apart, and the priests could not eat of these things. Other people could eat animals that died naturally within Israel. They would be unclean until evening, but the priests could not do this. This was not allowed to them, or allowed for them. Verse 9, therefore, keep my ordinance, lest they bear sin for it and die thereby. If they profane it, I am the Lord. I, the Lord, sanctify them. So the priests were not to defame the things that were dedicated to God if they had some type of uncleanness, uh, illness, leprosy, some discharge from their body, something going on. They could not um, approach the tabernacle to serve until they were made clean. So if it was an illness, they had to wait until they were better and uh, actually made whole again. But if it was something that they had touched that caused them to be unclean until the evening, then they were free after the sunset to become ceremonially clean again to eat of the holy offering. And the laws for the priest's household, 10 through 14, no outsider shall eat of the holy offering. No one who dwells with the priests or a hired servant shall eat of the holy things. But if the priest buys a person with his money, becomes a servant in his household, then he may eat. But one born, one who is born in his house, he may eat his food. And the priest's daughter is married to an outsider. She may not eat of the holy offerings. But the priest's daughter is a widow or divorced and has no child, returns to the father's house as in her youth, she may eat her father's food, but no outsider shall eat. Verse 14, if a man eats of the holy offering unintentionally, then he shall restore a holy offering to the priest and add one-fifth to it. 15 and 16, they shall not profane the holy offerings of the children of Israel that they offer to the Lord, nor allow them to bear the gift, guilt of trespass when they eat of the holy things, holy offerings. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. So God does the sanctifying, but as followers, especially the priestly line, and that's what's being referred to in chapters 21 and 22 specifically, they were responsible for keeping themselves uh, set apart 
ceremonially clean that they might serve God and God's people. So no outsider, no guest, no employee, a hired servant, even a daughter has been married, comes over for dinner, sorry, can't eat of the holy offering. It's not for you any longer. And for to break these things, um, they would bear their guilt of their own trespass. That's because they were mediators between God and the children of Israel. Numbers 18.1 says, You and your sons, speaking to Aaron, you and your sons, your father's house, you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. You and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with the priesthood. So they had responsibilities to keep themselves ceremonially sanctified, pure, clean, able to serve at the tabernacle of God. Now, I'm not going to read all the verses in 17 through 25. In this section, we have a section for the high priest, his son, the priest, and actually for all the children of Israel. Um, First of all, it just... 17 through 25 really speaks about the free will offerings, the vows that people take. First of all, they were uh, to be of their free will. They were to be of their free will. They're not supposed to come because you're forced into it. In verse 19, it says, You shall offer your own free will, a male without blemish from the cattle, from the sheep, or from the goats. Second, these offerings were to be without defect. 20 and 21, it says, whatever has a, a defect, you shall not offer, for it will not be accepted on your behalf. Whoever offers a sacrifice of the peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow or a freewill offering from the cattle or sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. So offerings like the priest who had these rules um, in the priesthood, no deformities if they were going to serve as a priest at the tabernacle or temple of God. So the animals that were offered, they were not to be blind or broken or maimed or have ulcers or scabs or have a limb that's too long or too short or to be bruised or crushed or torn or cut. In fact, we find though, Later on, after Israel returned from the Babylonian captivity, this is exactly what the people were doing and the priests were allowing. Let me read this first. Another thought came in my mind when I said that. Exactly what the priests or the people were doing and the priests were allowing. Malachi 1, 6 through 8. A son honors his father and his servant, his master. If I them and the father... Where is my honor, God speaking? If I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord, the Lord of hosts, to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? When you offer the lame... And the sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? And God says to his priests, 
If you have the governor show up to your house for dinner and you tell him, by the way, it's, you know it was roadkill, right? You think he's going to enjoy eating that meal and look kindly upon you? God said, if you hold that kind of standard for just the upper class of your society, how much more of a standard should you hold for me? The priests were to be mediators between God and the people. And in Malachi's day, instead of offering the best of their flock, the people failed to bring the best of the flock, but the priest failed to hold them up to the standard. Oh, I don't care if it's blind. It's okay. We'll let it go by this one time. You know, it's got a broken leg. No big deal. It's going to die anyways. We'll just offer it this one time. I think that's how the church is at large, is largely conducting itself today. And pastors are allowing things to take place in their churches that should not be allowed. And they're worried about offerings or attendance and they allow things to come in that they know go against the standard of God's word yet they compromise the truth of God's word to such a point that they're actually despising Jesus Christ and his name so Deuteronomy 17 1 says you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or a sheep that has any blemish or defect for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. So instead of giving God their best, they were offering that which was displeased, despised, sorry, I read that wrong, that which was despised and defiled, although such offerings were no, are no longer required by us. I wonder how God views our service to him today. How does he look at us when we bring our gifts to the Lord? 26 through 33, other sacrificial laws, and I'm just going to briefly run over these. God gives them other laws concerning sacrificial offerings. First, only animals eight days old and older. I know, only eight days old, poor little lamb. But this is God's standard. Verse 27, only animals eight days old or older could be offered on the altar to God. Second, a mother and its offspring, whether a cow or you could not be offered at the same on the same day. They could both be offered on separate days, but not on the same day. Third, all the Thanksgiving offerings were to be free will offerings and were to be eaten by the worshiper on the same day, verses 29 through 30. Finally, verses 31 through 33, God reminds both the priests and the people that they were to keep his commandments and perform these rituals. This was because... He had sanctified them by bringing them up out of the land of Egypt. He says that specifically in these latter verses, that God is the one who brought them up out of the land of Egypt. Verse 33, to be their God. And then God said, I am the Lord. And by these rituals, they were able then to have fellowship with God, the God who had redeemed them. In the Bible, Egypt is always seen as a type of the world where the children of Israel had been held in bondage for over 400 years, but God came and redeemed them. Therefore, they were not to walk as they once walked as the unredeemed of the world. 
Same is true for the church today. Jesus said in John 17, 16 through 19, this is actually his high priestly prayer to his father before he went to the cross, a section of that prayer. He said of his followers, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. How many times did God say in chapters 21 and 22, I, the Lord, have sanctified them. Here Jesus is asking God the Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Verse 19, and for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified by the truth. Jesus Christ, through his work upon the cross, has made sanctification in our lives possible, not by anything that we do, but by the work that Jesus did upon the cross. It still holds true to this day. For I, the Lord, sanctify them. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. So we're just going to run through chapter 23. You can read this in totality if you'd like. It's a great chapter in the sense that it gives seven feast days of the Jews. Today they celebrate nine. Uh, Purim and Hanukkah are not part of Scripture. So here we have the seven that are part of Scripture. And I'm going to run over these seven, but it begins with the Sabbath day. So key verse, verse 2, speak to the children of Israel, say to them, the feast of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. So who do they belong to? The Lord. They're mine. And I, he gives them to the children of Israel that they might know how to have fellowship with God. So Leviticus 23 lists out seven feasts of Israel. Each feast finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. Some have already been fulfilled. Others are waiting to be fulfilled. He begins with the Sabbath day. This is not a feast day, not part of the list of the seven, but it is part of the number seven because every seventh day they were to have a Sabbath's rest. Today in the church, we have our rest in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In verses 4 and 5, we have the piece of feast of Passover. Say that better. The feast of Passover celebrated on Nisan the 14th. The Jewish calendar for us, either in late March or all the way through late April, and we celebrate Easter at the same time. But the feast of Passover for the Christian church, the day that Christ died upon the cross, and it was for Israel to commemorate the time that God passed over the firstborn of Israel, giving them life while judging Egypt's firstborn and bringing death. And the 14th of Nisan was to be treated like a Sabbath day. And today in the church, it's in Jesus that we pass over from death into life. So the great New Testament Passover verse is John 5:24. Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who has sent me has everlasting life. 
shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, verses 6 through 8. This comes right after Passover. It's celebrated the month of Nisan, the 15th through the 21st. The 21st is like a Sabbath day, no matter what day of the week it might fall on. It becomes like a Sabbath to them. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, unleavened, they were to remove all leaven from their house because in the Bible, leaven represents sin. And so they were to wipe their house clean of leaven. And also we know that Christ Jesus lived a sinless life. There was no leaven in him, no sin. And we find that Jesus, through Jesus, the stain of our leaven, the stain of our sin has been removed, that we might come into a right relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since truly you are unleavened, for indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. The third feast, the Feast of first fruits, 9 through 14, it was a Thanksgiving offering that for the harvest of the land, it was observed on Nisan the 16th, which is the third day after Passover and the second day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Today, that first fruits, well, it's Jesus Christ. He is the first fruits of those who have risen from the dead according to 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and they and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ is our first fruits. The fourth feast, four of seven, 15 through 22, speaks about the feast of weeks, or Shavat, or the uh, gathering of the harvest in the fall. It takes place 50 days, actually this would be in the summertime, 50 days, So the formula is that they have Passover, and the day after they count seven Sabbaths, add one day, they have 50 days, and it becomes the Feast of Weeks. In the Old Testament, this is believed the time that Israel had Passover in Egypt, and they came out of Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai, and God gave the law to Moses there at Mount Sinai at that occasion during the Feast of Weeks, the timing is the Feast of Weeks, there was disobedience by the golden calf and 3,000 Israelis died. For the church, we find that this is the day of Pentecost where on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit poured out upon the church in Acts chapter 2 and 3,000 Israelis came to faith in Jesus as their Messiah. The fifth feast day, the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, a new moon fall festival. Now we're in the fall. and begins with, this is actually Israel's civil, civil calendar. So they have their religious calendar beginning with Passover, and this is their civil calendar beginning in the seventh month. On the first day, Rosh Hashanah, it means the head of the year. That's what that word means, Rosh Hashanah head of the year, 
It's supposed to take place on the first day of the seventh month, and it is still to be fulfilled by Jesus Christ and his church. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets, and that's going to happen in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, when the Lord himself will descend with the shout and the voice of an archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. So we're still waiting for the fulfillment of the Feast of Trumpets. We're still waiting for the trumpet blast and the rapture of the church. Feast day number six, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. The high priest, the day the high priest, and we learned about this in Leviticus 16 in detail, chapter 16 in detail, when the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of Israel, but also to cleanse the tabernacle and the altar and all the all the instruments, all the furnishings of the tabernacle. It was kind of renewing their worship one day out of the year on the Day of Atonement. Today, that atonement has taken place through Christ Jesus our Lord upon the cross. By the way, the Day of Atonement will be October 5th this year on the Jewish calendar. But it's Jesus who through his sacrifice of himself has put away sin once and for all, according to Hebrews 9.26. And finally, the seventh feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, we could call it, or Sukkoth. It reminds Israel of how God provided for them during the 40 years in the wilderness and it's a reminder for us in the church today that Jesus came and tabernacled himself on this earth. He came in the tent of flesh. He walked among us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the glory of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, John 1.14. So amazingly, each of these seven feasts find their fulfillment in Christ Jesus our Lord it does not surprise me many of these have already been fulfilled some waiting to be fulfilled Colossians 2 16 and 17 reminds us let no one judge you in food or in drink regarding the festivals or the new moon or Sabbaths which are a shadow of the things to God but the substance is Christ it's all about Jesus the substance is Christ Ultimately, it is in Jesus that we have our rest. Hebrews 4.1 says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. We have our rest in Christ Jesus, but though we believe in Jesus and we are redeemed, we are still awaiting that final rest to be with Christ in the glories of heaven for eternity. Until that day, we're here on this earth to represent Christ. Chapters 21 and 22, the priest, how they were to conduct themselves as the priest, as mediators between God and the children of God, 
Well, we as believers in Jesus Christ, being sanctified by Christ, we then should conduct ourselves in ways that represent Christ before brothers and sisters, but also family members and unbelievers, knowing that we have ultimately our rest in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for your word you've given us this night. And we pray, Father, your blessing upon it. And help us, Father, to walk in your truths. Lord, we're reading about Old Testament rules for the children of Israel that technically are no longer applicable to us as the church. But in learning of the laws that you desired for them to live by, how to discern between profane and holy, well, Lord, in our own country today, there are many people who are unable to discern between what is profane and what is holy. And several of these are in among your own church. So help us, Lord, to walk as the redeemed of the Lord, those whom you have sanctified, because, Lord, we partake of the bread of God, your flesh and your blood, Lord, has covered us and washed us whiter than snow. Help us, Lord, to be your representatives, to bring glory to your name as we're out and about in life. And help us, Lord, to walk near to you. We pray this day in the name of Jesus. Amen.